because I have a dream. You're listening to Oh Brother, When Art Thou? And now here's your host, Neil White. Welcome to Oh Brother, When Art Thou? I'm your host, Neil White, joined as always by my brother, David. David, did you get all your Christmas shopping done? <laughs> Not even close. Not even close. So you're a last minute guy, obviously. I got mine done on Black Friday. I like to get it done well in advance, if possible. Nice preparation. I don't do it, but I admire it. It is that time of the year when everybody is figuring out how the heck they're going to get their Christmas shopping done and hopefully enjoying some time with family and friends as well somewhere in between all of that. But if you have some extra time, we're glad you joined us here for Oh Brother, When Art Thou? David, do you have a story to tell us? I might have a story to tell you, Neil. Then let's start with the question we always ask. Oh, brother, when art thou? Neil, it's Christmas Eve, 1941. In the pre-dawn darkness above the Gulf of the St. Lawrence, three Canadian-built Corvettes, an aircraft-carrying submarine, a French vice-admiral, and a missing, presumed kidnapped American reporter are preparing a Christmas present for France in defiance of the express wishes of the American, the British, and the Canadian governments. All right, David, we've got some drama already. I think having anything on Christmas Eve like automatically adds drama to it. It's, you know, kind of the diehard effect. A little bit, yeah. But this sounds like it's going to be quite the mission. So, David, obviously we're in the middle of World War II here in 1941. Set the scene for us. What is going on in the world? So the big change in December 1941 occurred right at the very start when the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor and brought the Americans into the war. A day that would live in infamy. Exactly. And even at the end of December, everyone's trying to figure out how the war has changed. What are the Americans going to do? How is everybody else going to work with the Americans or against them if you're on the other side? It's big, it's new, it's confusing. All right, so who are these two individuals you mentioned at the beginning? So we've got the French Vice Admiral Emile Henri Mousselier. He is the commander in chief of the Free French Naval Forces. He wants to define the relationship between the Free French de Gaulle government that he represents and supports and the allied governments that are currently propping them up, basically, because they control, at this point in the war, absolutely no territory of their own. But he doesn't want to define that relationship as a subordinate relationship. He wants to prove that the Free French can be the equals of their American and British allies. Even without any actual territory. Well... One way to prove that they can be the equal of their allies might be to get some territory. So that's one way to define a relationship, too. 
All right, does he have his eye on some specific territory? Well, we're in the Gulf of the St. Lawrence on board the submarine and three corvettes that make up the striking power of the free French Navy that he was able to assemble for this mission. And they reach the small island of St. Pierre, which you may know as half of St. Pierre and Miquelon. And tying up to its undefended dock, the ship's marines leap ashore and head inland, beginning the liberation of the French Empire. All right, David, for those who don't know, obviously the Gulf of St. Lawrence is along the Canadian coastline. Situate St. Pierre, where is it exactly? So St. Pierre, as I've mentioned, is in the Gulf of the St. Lawrence, it's near Newfoundland, Nova Scotia. It's very close to the coast of North America, Newfoundland especially. It's not far at all from Newfoundland. Not at all. And it is the last remnant by 1941 of the French Empire in North America that at one point was New France and controlled Louisiana and Quebec and these vast areas, but now it's Saint-Pierre and Miquelon, two little islands, mostly fishing islands off the coast of Newfoundland. And we have done some episodes about New France and the French Empire in North America uh, episode 9, The Acadian Civil War, is a great episode if you're interested in that. There was also episode 27, The Burned Fort, which had a very interesting story about North America as well. Just for a little shameless plug, if you're looking for something to listen to over the Christmas holidays, go back and listen to a couple of those episodes. So, David, they have landed in St. Pierre, and it's evidently undefended. Well, there are a grand total of 11 police officers uh, who are the armed force of the government of Saint-Pierre and Miquelon. In theory, they're loyal to Vichy France, but in practice, as over a hundred free French marines storm the beaches, they all surrender immediately, and no shots are fired, as this, the first outpost of Vichy France to fall to the free French forces of liberation, bloodlessly surrenders probably a smart decision on the part of the 11 police officers it was not likely that saint pierre and michelon were going to be held by their own military resources against a serious assault but david the germans or the vichy french governments obviously didn't consider arming that territory or defending that territory in any way well they briefly considered actually sending a naval ship from Vichy, France, to try and discourage any potential Canadian or American attacks. But then they realized that most of the Vichy French Navy was actually pro-De Gaulle, and sending a ship that far away would have the risk of the crew defecting to the Allies. So they decided not to. All right, David. So now Saint-Pierre is officially back in the hands of the Free French? Well, that depends on who you ask. I mentioned at the start of this episode that everybody is trying to figure out how America is going to fit in 
to the war plans of the Allies. One person who really cares about that is Winston Churchill. And at this point, he is actually in Washington, D.C., having high-level conferences with President Roosevelt himself. And they're discussing everything. How are they going to manage the entire war? And suddenly, an aide bursts into the room and announces that this is Christmas Day, I should specify, one day later. An aide bursts into the room and announces that the New York Times and the other major papers are reporting that Ira Wolfert, the famous American reporter who's gone missing just a few days previously, has finally announced where he was the whole time, and he linked up with the Free French Forces and was there for the liberation of Saint-Pierre, which is now in Free French hands. Churchill and Roosevelt tell the aide to leave because they're doing important things, and frankly, Saint-Pierre is not a large enough island to concern them right now. So not exactly the dramatic turn that the Free French were hoping for. Well, it gets worse, because a few minutes later, Secretary of State Cordell Hull storms in. He's not happy. He just heard that the Free French had liberated the island of Saint-Pierre. But a few weeks before, he had expressly ordered the Free French not to do that when this plan was first being discussed because he wants to negotiate with Vichy France to see if he can convince them to not actively campaign on behalf of the Axis. And he is very unhappy that, first of all, his wishes have just been completely ignored by the French who don't consider him to be their commander in any way. Because he's American? Because he's American. Makes sense to me. But also, he's very unhappy that they just seized an island off the coast of North America in ignoring the... Monroe Doctrine, ignoring all of his plans for negotiations with Vichy, they just went ahead and grabbed it. And he is furious. So, David, what are the Americans going to do? Presumably they want to react to this defiance of their orders, but they don't want to push the Free French too far away, do they? So, Secretary of State Hall, with the approval of President Roosevelt, begins by simply putting out a public announcement that the American government is not going to be involved. He actually refuses to acknowledge directly what happened, referring to so-called Free French ships reported to have taken the island of Saint-Pierre. Unfortunately for him, That doesn't go over well with the American press or the American public. The Herald Tribune writes in an editorial after receiving this press release, Perhaps if these were not free French ships, perhaps they were pink elephants. And a group of prominent American citizens write a response to the 
so-called Secretary of State Cordell Hull disagreeing with pretty much everything he stated about the possibility of negotiations with Vichy France and about the undesirability of taking the islands of Saint-Pierre and Miquelon immediately. So there is a disconnect here, David, between the American politicians and the American public, one of whom wants to continue to negotiate with Vichy France. The others are quite happy to take their territories away from them. How is this going to sort itself out, David? You mentioned at the beginning that this is all about figuring out how the Americans are going to fit into these war plans. What effect does this end up having? So the first piece of sorting this all out is an idea that Admiral Mousselier gets once he's on the ground on Saint-Pierre and Miquelon. Uh, they liberate Miquelon as well with one of their corvettes shortly thereafter. He announces, in respect for the principles of democracy which the great nations of France and America share, that they're going to resolve the question of whether the Free French or the Vichy French should control the island of Saint-Pierre with a plebiscite. They're going to have a vote. And is the vote just going to be in Saint-Pierre and Miquelon, David? It's going to be a vote of the citizens of Saint-Pierre and Miquelon, yes. How many people would that be? They get 760 votes total, which is almost the entire male population of the island. And how many vote to remain in Vichy, France? So the question on the ballot is, will you rally to the Free French, or are you voting for collaboration with the Axis powers? Yeah, that's a good way to frame the question if you want a certain answer, I would imagine. So 650 of the 760 voters wish to rally to the Free French. 10 are explicitly for collaboration with the Axis powers, and 100 of the ballots were voided by various flaws. Not exactly an overwhelming majority for collaboration. <laughs> no, quite the opposite. So that sort of takes the wind out of Secretary of State Hall's sails insofar as trying to insist that the Free French have done something wrong here. Clearly, the will of the people of the islands themselves is not powerfully in favor of remaining with the Vichy government, which in the short time that it had ruled over the islands had managed to make itself very unpopular for a number of reasons, ranging from almost destroying the entire island's economy with the war against Canada being a particular problem because all the fishing boats couldn't go out. And these are, as I've already said, mostly fishing-based islands economically. So that was a catastrophe. All the way down to the governor of the island's insistence on coming out and officially announcing that the anti-Semitic laws that the Nazis had insisted the Vichy French government put in force in France 
would be in force on the islands as well. All laws, including these wildly unpopular anti-Semitic laws, would be in force, which was particularly bizarre to the inhabitants of the island because the Jewish population of St. Pierre and Miquelon was precisely zero. So they didn't have much experience with the sorts of things that were happening in Europe. It didn't make much sense in terms of uh, linking them to the Axis powers. It didn't link them to the Axis powers. It drove them away. It was bizarre and unpleasant, and it made the governor look a little crazy because he was coming out with all these announcements about how loyal he was to the Vichy French government and how he was going to crush the Free French and so on when the people of the islands felt that it just showed he didn't understand local concerns about fishing and was rambling on about these irrelevant European issues. So, David, the Free French officially have some territory now. They have Saint-Pierre and Miquelon, a couple of fairly small islands off the coast of Canada, but it is territory. Does that change their relationship now with the other Allied powers? Well, unfortunately, this is where we come to the more depressing side of the story. So, in some ways, it does change their relationship with the other Allied powers, but mostly not for the better. For the Americans, the big thing that they see out of this incident is that the Free French are out of control, are willing to do whatever they want to do without any kind of communication or consensus building, any consideration of the effects it's going to have on everybody else. Even after most senior American officials have admitted that Secretary of State Hull was really wrong, you know, negotiating with, with Vichy France was a dumb idea. The fact that the Free French had gone ahead and done something like this with no consultation against the express request of the American government created this opinion in America that de Gaulle's Free French organization couldn't be trusted. The British government cared less, mostly because they didn't care about Saint-Pierre and Miquelon, but they already had pre-existing problems with de Gaulle, uh, personal problems between de Gaulle and Churchill, really. There's a famous uh, quote from later in the war where Churchill was complaining about de Gaulle to one of his friends, a guy called Brendan Bracken. And Bracken said, remember, Winston, he thinks of himself as the reincarnation of Joan of Arc. And Churchill replies, yes, but my bishops aren't going to burn him at the stake, which is not exactly a great positive uh, statement of, you know, friendship or anything. I believe the implication was that it was an irritant that Winston Churchill's bishops were not going to solve the problem the way it had been solved hundreds of years ago. And the Canadian government actually, although they had agreed with the American government that the Free French shouldn't do it, were surprisingly the only government that was basically in favor of all of this. They'd wanted to take Saint-Pierre and Miquelon earlier in the year. They were worried that it was a threat to convoys if the 
radio transmitters anywhere along the coast of North America were under control of forces allied with Germany that might report positions of ships to German U-boats at sea. So they'd wanted to seize Saint-Pierre and Miquelon, and the fact that it had been conveniently done for them over American objections without Canada having to eat the diplomatic repercussions of doing it meant that they were happy with it. But Canada wasn't a big factor for the Free French insofar as working with the Allied powers. And the fact that their relations with the two biggest Western Allied powers that they needed to work with, Britain and the United States, had gone downhill over this venture that they saw as very symbolically important and necessary. The idea of leaving territory in Vichy hands to de Gaulle was not acceptable. This was a stress on the internal organization of Vichy France and would actually lead to Vice Admiral Mousselier and de Gaulle having ugly political disputes for the rest of the war as to who should be in charge of the Free French because they both blamed each other for this operation not being popular, especially with the Americans. So, David, it didn't seem like very much at all. Just a uh, hundred Marines storming a small island off the coast of Newfoundland, but it ends up having fairly big repercussions for the rest of the war, and it all started on Christmas Eve. It all started on Christmas Eve, and it's worth remembering that there's also a set of powerful, positive upsides to this little adventure. Sure, the negative ones are big too, but the symbolic success for the free French of liberating territory will be a powerful inspiration to the French resistance movement. The Vichy government made the mistake in the aftermath of the liberation of the islands of attempting to demonize the free French by claiming that they had massacred the local population. But sloppily, their propaganda bureau making up numbers for how many of the local population have been massacred wrote over a thousand, which because anyone with access to a French encyclopedia knew that the total population of the islands of Saint-Pierre and Miquelon was below 1,000 did not seem very convincing and helped to decrease trust in their government's propaganda from the people of France. And it helped to gain experience for the Free French Navy, which may seem like a small thing, but the ships that fought, okay, I guess didn't fought, served at Saint-Pierre and Miquelon would go on to all have careers serving with the Allied navies, mostly as convoy escorts in the North Atlantic in the critical Battle of the Atlantic. And David, I suppose they had a fairly big invasion coming up a little bit later in 1944. And you can hear about that one in episode 28, The Great Crusade. Two shameless plugs in one episode. Thanks for telling us this story, David. Always happy to share these things, Neil. I think this story should be the new Christmas Eve tradition. Let's move on from Die Hard and tell this story instead. 
All right, David, we always like to end the podcast with a quiz or something fun. So today I have an on this day quiz. We've done this before. I have five questions all about the same day in history. And today you might have guessed our day is going to be December 25th, Christmas Day. All right, Neil, hit me. All right, our first Christmas Day in the year 800. This emperor was coronated, the first to rule Western Europe since the fall of the Roman Empire. The first emperor to rule Western Europe since the fall of the Roman Empire? That wouldn't be Charlemagne, would it? It would be Charlemagne, David, who was crowned Christmas Day in the year 800. Moving forward a few years, the year 1000, Stephen I established this country as a Christian kingdom. Today, it is the 19th most populous country in Europe. Stephen I establishes the country. I'm honestly unsure. I'll guess Hungary. David, that is an incredible answer because it was Hungary. Stephen I of Hungary established the country on Christmas Day in the year 1000. As we go forward in time, David, to 1809, when Dr. Ephraim McDowell performed the first successful removal of which organ? Successful removal of which organ in 1809? Organ removal before anesthetic. That cannot have been pleasant. I'll guess the appendix. A good guess, David, but when you're talking about organs that would be unpleasant to remove without anesthetic, I think the ovary is very high up there, and that is, in fact, what Dr. Ephraim McDowell removed on Christmas Day in 1809. On Christmas Day. All right. Moving forward to 1826, David, a riot at West Point Military Academy comes to an end on Christmas Day, one day after it began. The riot would be named for this popular holiday drink. Popular holiday drink around Christmas? I have to guess eggnog. It was, in fact, the eggnog riot, David, named uh, because two days prior, a large quantity of whiskey was smuggled into the academy to make eggnog for the party, which led to riots. Fun times. Fun times at West Point Academy for sure, David. All right, David. Another Christmas Day event in 1968, this Apollo mission performed the first successful trans-Earth injection, sending the crew and spacecraft on a trajectory back to Earth from lunar orbit. All right. I would guess that would be before the first successful lunar landing uh with Apollo 11, so it's got to be a lower number than 11. All guess 8. Hang on, David. Apollo 8 performed the first successful trans-Earth injection, Christmas Day, 1968. Thanks for playing along with the quiz, David. Always happy to, Neil. And thanks for listening. Make sure you go like and subscribe to the podcast so you can get them right into all of your podcast feeds wherever you listen to podcasts. And everyone, have a happy holidays, Merry Christmas, Happy New Year. We'll see you in 2020.